Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I am your host, Bill Scher. Today, we are joined by our first repeat guest. Uh, he is a Boston Globe columnist. Uh, you might remember our interview with him about his previous book, American Maelstrom, about the 1968 presidential election. His new book is Clear and Present Safety, The World Has Never Been Better, and Why That Matters to Americans Michael A. Cohen. Thanks so much for coming back. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, now, for those who follow your work, follow your work at the Boston Globe, follow you in social media, uh, you are not a fan of President Donald Trump. You're, <laughs> that is you're, not sanguine, <laughs> you're not sanguine about what he's doing to the country and the world. That's right. So what would compel you <laughs> to write a book about how things aren't so bad? Well, because I'm an optimist and I'm not, I'm not going to let Donald Trump uh, destroy my optimism about, about global events, I guess is one way to put it. Um, you know, it's, it's, a good, it's a good question. And it's a funny thing about when this, this book has been something that I've been working on with my, with my co-author, Mike Azenko, for a couple of years now. And I will be honest that the day after the 2016 election, there were some furtive emails between, between Mike and myself about what do we do now? Because it did seem to undermine some of the, the arguments in the book. Um, but, you know, but at least, at least it, I think it appeared to, to undermine some of the arguments. But the reality is that we wrote this book because there is a great story to tell about international affairs that frankly has not been told. Um, and, that, and that story is that we are living in, in one of the most extraordinary moments, um, positive moments in human history. Um, as far as uh, improvements in global living standards, um, people are living longer lives, people are um, uh, healthier, um, they are richer, they have more money, um, they have more access to education, to healthcare, to clean water, to healthy food, and so on and so forth. So there's, there's all these great positive elements that have happened. Um, and that story is not being told. Uh, that story is, is, being, is being overwhelmed by... Uh, um, Threat mongering and threat inflation that we've seen in the past twenty years. Threat mongering about terrorism, about Im- immigrants, um, about Iran and North Korea and the rise of China and so on and so forth. So we decided, you know, it was it was a it was an opportunity. This this book is an opportunity to sort of to tell us to tell the story of what's really happening um, in in a way that I think most people are not aware. Um, and so even the election of Donald Trump, I can't change the fact that we have this extraordinary developments and these developments that we think. Um, uh, have, have have made a huge difference in global affairs and can continue to do so if we have leaders in this country who understand them and are and are focused on um, continuing this 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 expansion in human development that we've seen over the past twenty or thirty years. Um, so, what do you attribute the uh, improvement in uh, our daily lives? Is it um, is it is it capitalism? Is it uh, education? Is it um, international alliances? Uh, is it technology? Is it, wh- what would you say is the main reason why uh, things are better today than they were 50, 100, 500 years ago? 
I mean, all, all of the things you mentioned are, are good are good um, um, examples of of the reason why we've seen this progress occur. I mean, certainly, you know, we sort of we go back to the end of the Cold War um, and and the this revolution in in freedom and political uh, liberalization and more countries being democratic um, in economic liberalization in expansion of international trade um, and economic interdependence, all of which has contributed to uh, a lot of the economic gains that we've seen over the past several decades. Um, but it's also, uh, the, I think, a factor that you have this a, a global consensus to a large extent around a lot of issues related to global and human development. And, and that's, a, that's a big deal, I think, one that's really underappreciated. You know, uh, we talk a lot in the book about the, the Millennium Development Goals, which were a series of, of uh, benchmarks basically put forward by the international community on a host of development issues, on education, on uh, food security, on, uh, on health. Um, and what, what we've seen over the past two decades in particular is that global actors, international organizations, states, NGOs, philanthropies have come together to, to, to uh, bring progress on a number of, of these development issues that once seemed intractable. And so one example, just, you know, we talk a lot in the book about threat inflation and how we overemphasize the wrong things in, in, in foreign policy. And we talk a lot about the disaster that was the Iraq war and the opportunity costs of that, that, that were created by going to war in Iraq and how, and how badly that, um, what, what a waste of resources, I should say, that, that war represented. And of course, a, a tragic you know, waste of human life that all those who were killed during the war. But um, one thing we pointed out is that one of the positive aspects that came out of the whole sort of war and terrorism mindset was the, the PEPFAR program which was the Bush administration's efforts to deal with the HIV AIDS crisis. And what turned out was, was a very rather small investment of $15 billion, um, relatively speaking. I mean, $15 billion is not a small amount of money, but compared to what we spent in Iraq and Afghanistan, it is a small amount of money. Um, but that $15 billion helps, uh, has helped uh, lead to this extraordinary decline in HIV and AIDS deaths. Um, we, we're, we're living now through a 12-year decline um, in in deaths, actually, I think it's even more than twelve years. I have to look at the numbers, but more than a dozen years of a decline in um, in AIDS deaths, HIV and AIDS deaths. Um, that's a huge uh, um, issue that's a, that's changed lives for millions, tens of millions of people around the world. Um, and it was done with again, you know, a small investment by the United States, but also cooperation by states, by NGOs, by international organizations that work together to to sort of make this. Uh, positive change possible, and you know it's not just you know in uh, HIV/AIDS. It's also things like uh, tuberculosis prevention, which has saved something like fifty million lives. Uh, measles immunizations, which apparently everyone but in Los Angeles and in the Pacific Northwest understand, and I should say in where I live in New York understands this is important. Um, it's decreases in malaria. Um, you've seen diseases that once killed you know millions of people uh, are have largely, in some cases, been wiped out. Uh, things like polio, things like guinea worm, um, which was a disease that once um, uh, affected like you know million, three and a half million people in the developing world. Basically, by by uh, last year, there was one reported case in the world. So we, we're seeing this extraordinary improvement and increase. And and I think one thing the book that's important to us to talk about is that these are the kind of stories we should be focusing on, and also thinking about how do we continue to to, to ensure this progress continues. And too often, in, when we talk about foreign policy, we talk about uh, you know, nuclear weapons. We talk about terrorism. 
We don't talk about the progress that we've made and, and uh, on human development and the ways that we can continue the progress. You know, one of the tricky elements of the sort of perennial half glass, half full, glass, half empty argument is if you're focusing on the positive as you're doing right now, some will charge. This is sort of a classic you know, you know, white privilege take. There's all sorts of terrible things happening in the world. There's still plenty of crushing poverty, plenty of disease, uh, er- erosion of, of, of worker rights and, and human rights. Um, so by focusing on the positive, you are, you're, you're removing the urgency to deal with what's still negative in the world. But I suppose the flip side is if you don't focus on the positive at all, you can't learn the lessons of how you've gotten as far as you have come. So uh, how, how do you square those, that, that, that tension in, in, the, in the book? Well, your, your last part's exactly right, that if you don't focus on, on the positives, it's, I mean, it's hard to know how you can make progress going forward. And I think one reason that we talk about these positive elements is understand that problems that seem intractable to us today, you know, once seemed intractable 20 or 30 years ago and have to a large extent been, been, been uh, progresses made on them. And, I, and I, uh, one rejoinder that we get a lot about the book is on the issue of climate change, and for obvious reasons. Um, and, you know, it is obviously a, a, a problem that, that, that is greater than I think anything we've ever seen, especially in environmental issues, but also is one that I think um, uh, could wipe out a lot of the positive changes that we've seen happen over the past several decades. But one thing that, that I, I remind, remind people is, I may be dating myself when I say this, but I remember when I was a kid, we talked about the ozone uh, hole. The ozone layer was, you know, was basically, there's a hole developing in the ozone layer you know, over the, the, uh, it was over the South Pole. And this was going to create huge uh, uh, global problems uh, if this wasn't dealt with. And, and it, was, it was sort of talked about in very alarmist terms and for, for good reason, it was a big problem. And yet uh, the international community came together uh, eliminated uh, what, what known as chlor- the use of chlorofluorocarbons, um, which w- was contributing to the to the um, the ozone hole. And as a result, uh, the, the ozone hole has basically been been filled up. There is not this problem that we thought thirty years ago was was going to be this this incredible crisis for the, for for humanity has, has largely been resolved. So I, 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 it's important just to understand that, that problems that, again, we thought we couldn't solve, we have found ways to deal with. I mean, the HIV-AIDS crisis 20 years ago, I think there was a lot of sense that this was an epidemic that was out of control. And we've seen extraordinary progress in how uh, we've dealt with this issue, not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, but I want to get back to what you said a second ago, which I think is really interesting, the white privilege argument. Um, that, that, my, that our argument that Mike and I are making is a white privilege argument. I would say the opposite is true. The people who dispute what we're talking about, they're the ones who are sort of exhibiting the white privilege here, if you want to use that, that expression. Because in a way, it is minimizing this extraordinary progress that you've seen in what is, for the most part, developing countries, right? I mean, the, the, in virtually every developing country in the world, you have seen uh, huge progress in um, uh, raising global living standards, and getting more people to go, people to go to school, more women to go to school, more girls to go to school. Um, you've seen huge progress in wiping out diseases. I mean, th- the thing is, and I think one reason why some people don't want to talk about this is because the way this has happened is through things like increased trade, through uh, increased economic interdependence, the things that supposedly people complain about and say contribute to inequality are also the things that have led to this increase in global living standards. Um, so one thing that's happened recently, there's this bizarre debate going on now. People are saying, 
we've seen this decline in poverty that basically 30 years ago, half the half developing world lived in poverty. Today, the number is less than 10%. That is, to me, the most extraordinary story in national affairs in the last 25 years. I mean, just an incredible, seminal transformation in, in the human experience. And you have people now who are writing pieces for The Guardian and other places that are basically saying, this isn't really happening, that these numbers are wrong, and that you know, we, should, we should look at poverty in a different way, and we should, we should assess the numbers differently. And I think that this has become like a, a way to dispute uh, this progress. And I think it's being done by people who have an agenda. And that agenda is to push back on sort of what they call the neoliberalist sort of approach to global, global affairs. They, they people who don't like globalization, don't like trade. And <clears throat> so one way to sort of push back on that is to say all this progress that is, that is the result in many ways of, of greater interdependence and greater trade is not really happening. Um, and so I, I do think that, that this argument is not only a privileged argument. This argument is actually the opposite of that. Um, and I think it's one that I think a lot of people should, I, I think people on the left are not taking seriously enough. Uh, so you mentioned this debate between, uh, you know, some on the left and so-called neoliberalism. Uh, often there are critiques that the, uh, the push towards globalization, the push towards uh, lowering international trade barriers uh, don't serve to help uh, the poor in the world that they're, those rules have been written to benefit uh, multinational corporations and to erode workers' rights and erode uh, environmental protections and, and, and so forth. Um, are you arguing in the book that that is wrong and that, I, mean, I don't know if you embrace the, the, the term or the philosophy of neoliberalism, but are you arguing that uh, what those on the left criticize actually uh, has its merits? Um, yes. I mean, we, I, I think that, you know, we're not, we're not, um, there, there, there's a strain on, uh, I think on the people who are sort of optimists, who I think argue, uh, sort of dismiss some of the, the claims of income inequality or, or which, which, which certainly has increased globally over the past several, several decades. There's no question about that. Um, I, I don't think, you know, I think that we're not, we're not, we don't, we don't fall into that camp necessarily. I mean, I think we, we sort of very cognizant of the fact that, that some of the, the these improvements have have created um, there there have been there have been the negative consequences from some of these developments in the sense of inequality being one very good example of that, um, and also that some of this progress has stalled. There's no question about that. Also, that in places where like China, for example, where you've seen extraordinary increases in in uh, or decreases in in poverty rates, you're now seeing uh, which was by the way the result of just you know amazing growth rates that were sort of in part. Um, uh, manufactured by by the state by the state itself, uh, you've seen sort of a, a, a as those growth rates have declined somewhat, a, a, a moves toward authoritarianism, greater authoritarianism um, in China and other places as well. So I think there are sort of there are there are sort of negative things to look at here. And I, but I I, I I do think in general the, the story here, um, and I hate the word neoliberal by the way because it's basically an epithet for anybody who disagrees with with people. Like on the left, I think it's become an epithet for people who don't agree with them. They're just neoliberals. Um, and I, it's become a term, of, a, a sort of catch-all term of, of insult. Um, I just, I think in general, though, it's really hard to argue that the, the, the trade agreements, uh, trade liberalization, um, globalization has contributed to a, a lot of what the progress that we write about in the book. I, I don't think any question about that. Um, you know, not that there's not a downside to some of that, but in, but I think but by and large, there's a positive story here, um, and I think that. Uh, that makes me a neoliberal. Fine, makes me a neoliberal. I mean, that's what you want. That's how you want to call me. I, I'm not going to stop you. Someone wants to label me that. But the the facts are the facts. 
You know, and I think one frustration I have about some of the trade debates that we see in this country is that um, we only focus on sort of the losers in trade, and we don't focus on the people who, on, on the extraordinary um, uh, positive developments that come from trade. There are lots of communities in this country that have benefited extraordinarily from trade. There are in, whole industries that exist now that didn't exist 20 years ago because of, of increased international trade. Um, and we should be focusing on the communities that are hurt, the people who have been the, the losers in this, in this process. But we should also shouldn't ignore the, that the, the, the positive aspects of international trade. And I look at something like, you know, the, uh, the TPP issue and, and the fact that you had, you know, not just Republicans, but Democrats who opposed it. Um, and the result the of trans- that Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership trade agreement that Obama had negotiated, but but Trump uh, re, uh, pulled out of upon being inaugurated. Right. Th- thank you. And, and and I just would add to that that you know he did pull out of it, but but if you remember that during the 2016 campaign, Hillary Clinton said she would d- do the same thing. Um, and I think that that sort of um, animosity toward trade that is focused mainly on trying to win over voters in midwestern states really ignores the positive aspects of trade. And, and has ended up hurting American business businesses, but also hurt American consumers. Um, and I think that you know that that is something that is I think very unfortunate, and also is is a result of that we don't have a conversation about trade that lo- looks at both sides of the equation. We have a conversation about trade that basically looks at the negative side and not the positive side. Now, Hillary Clinton turned on TPP under pressure from her primary challenger, Bernie Sanders, because uh, there was a lot of uh, antipathy towards trade liberalization on the left. But it's Donald Trump that ended up benefiting from that sentiment uh, upon winning the election. Uh, and upon his inauguration, um, you've had a, a spate of books talking about um, erosion of basic democracy, the most famous being how democracies die. Um, and Trump is often looked upon as a, uh, as a, a figure who is you know, talking up strongmen like Kim Jong-il, being favorable to Vladimir Putin, being you know, bullying uh, free press in, in America. Uh, and along with that, there's been an increased concern about political polarization, um, making it hard to find common ground and also contributing to a sense of democratic uh, uh, norms and governmental stability. So if I can um, circle back a bit to what you were saying about uh, the ozone layer and climate, this is a big debate about, so you, you acknowledge that climate change is one of our most pressing concerns and not the most pressing concern, even though uh, regardless of what improvements have been made in society. Uh, the ozone layer problem was solved through uh, with a Republican president who could find bipartisan support in America and reach out uh, on the global stage and win international support for a solution. Uh, is that kind of solution possible in with our current state of affairs with deepening polarization uh, and, and weakening alliances around the world? It's possible, but not if Donald Trump remains president. <laughs> I think it's an easy way to put that. I mean, you know, I think that um, this is one of the reasons why we're also concerned, uh, and and we, we say this in the book. You know, I'm glad you asked this question because I didn't want your your listeners to think that I'm uh, too Panglossian in my my view of of international affairs. Because you know, there has been this decline in democracy over the past uh, now decade or so um, that is very worrisome. Because one of the reasons why we've seen so much progress over the past 20 or 30 years is because of this 
expansion in political freedom, expansion in democracy. Democracies tend to be, um, they tend to embrace economic liberalization. Uh, they tend to be better on issues like the environment. They tend to actually do things for their, for their, for their citizens. Um, and that's one of the reasons why these, why we had such improvement on, on, on these global development metrics. Um, and I, you know, the, the decline in, in, in democracy, you know, it's, it's evident around the world. Um, you know, you've seen countries that are authoritarian become more authoritarian, like China and Russia, and some extent Turkey. Countries that were democracies become a move in the wrong direction, and like 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 uh, Poland and Hungary and the Philippines. And in the U.S., you know, you've certainly seen this this I mean, step back from. Uh, I mean, we're America's still a democracy, but it's it's less democratic than it was, you know, three years ago or two and a half years ago. Um, and and and. Part that 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 has a that has a a a cascading effect. And one of the places is on environmental issues, and you you bring this up, but but certainly the decision by Trump to pull out of the Paris climate deal, um, the 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 step back on environmental regulation, all of these things have contributed uh, to worsening the climate change problem and make it harder, as you say, to find international consensus on this issue. Um, and I, you know, it's interesting because there is a lot of, there is a great deal of international consensus on the need to deal with climate change. I mean, uh, the biggest outlier is, is the United States. And actually, if I'm being more specific, the biggest outlier is the Republican party in the United States. Um, so yeah, it's harder to make progress on, on an issue like that because of this. And I think this is something that I think voters should think about in 2020. I mean, if you want progress on climate change, you're not going to get it. If you have, if you have Donald Trump is in the white house, it's just a fact. Um, and I think that's some, that, 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 and, and I would say also that, that, that Trump remaining in office undermines so many of the elements that have, that have led to this improvement in the human condition we talk about in the book, you know, I mean, uh, international cooperation, uh, the international system, the, the, the consensus that, that, that has largely exists with the national system that condemns, you know, um, uh, cross border attacks that, uh, stand, uh, tries to uphold the, the democracy that works to stop you know, proliferation of, of weapons of mass destruction. All of those things are, are in part a result of an international system, international uh, uh, consensus on these issues. And that consensus has been weakened by this president. So I, I do think that, that uh, you know, that is, that is certainly, if I, if I would point to one issue, the, Mike and I would both, both say the one issue that really concerns us going forward is this deficit, this democracy deficit, and the extent to which that will undermine the progress that's been made over the past several decades. Uh, one thing we do here on New Books and Politics, and by the way, we're talking to Michael A. Cohen, author of Clear and Present Safety, The World Has Never Been Better, and Why That Matters to Americans, co-written with uh, Mika Zenko, published by Yale University Press. Um, we give our New Books and Politics super fans the opportunity to ask questions to the authors in advance, and the one question I got for you uh, was, how do you square your thesis with the proliferation of guns in the U.S. during the past 30 years? That's a great question. I'm so glad that I got asked that because one of the things in the book we talk about, um, and here's the, here's the, the negative side of the story. Uh, I, I, I didn't want to seem, again, I didn't want to seem too Panglossian. So I pre- the last two questions have helped uh, make sure that I'm not too Panglossian. Um, that the, the, so the negative part of the story is this. While all this progress is being made around the world, the U.S. is moving in the opposite direction. Um, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why I want to write the book as well is that we focus so much in this country on global threats. We focus on terrorism. We focus on weapons of mass destruction. Uh, we focus on potential military rivals. But what we argue in the book is we should we should be focusing on things like guns, 
and drugs and obesity, um, issues that that fundamentally undermine our quality of life in this country. And you know, it's interesting. This this book was something that we had uh, began as a as an article in Foreign Affairs back in 2012, and when we wrote that. We didn't even mention the the, the drug epidemic uh, because it wasn't. It was, obviously, there was, there was drug. It was a problem, and there was, uh, you know, many Americans were being were being killed from, from dying from overdoses. But it wasn't a crisis the way it is today. Um, and of course, now more than seventy thousand Americans died last year um, from uh, drug overdoses, which is almost as many as died from guns and cars combined. Um, and that is a, in my view, a national crisis that ha- deserves be treated like a national crisis, like a national emergency, and it's not. Um, and guns is another issue. I mean, we, uh, 40,000 Americans are, are killed by guns, or killed by guns, I think it was 2017, it was 40,000. It's the highest total in 50 years. Um, and those numbers, uh, you know, are getting worse uh, at a time when around the world, again, gun violence, you know, it pales. There's, there's just simply no, no, no country that has anywhere near the level of gun violence that we do in this country. And the, the result of that, it's not just, by the way, the tragedy of, of lives lost, which, of course, itself is enough of a tragedy that we should be focusing on this. But there's a larger uh, price we pay for this, which is the, the economic costs. And, and when it comes to something like guns, for example, you know, the, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in healthcare costs, um, in, in, in declining economic productivity that is a result of, of gun violence in this country. I mean, we, we talk a lot in the book about, about health issues. Take, take an issue like obesity. You know, 40% of Americans are considered obese. That, that by the way, is, when we read the article in 2012, it was 32%, a 25% increase in just a, a seven-year period. Um, and, you know, the, the obesity crisis affects hundreds of millions of Americans, but it's also something in which the cost of it are enormous. We're talking about trillions of dollars in healthcare costs, in lost productivity, in declining GDP, you know, from this issue. So, you know, for, to, from our perspective, that is an, an issue that we need to be talking about and dealing with and thinking about as a national security crisis. Because when it's when you have something like like guns, something like like um, obesity, which which contributes to to what are called chronic diseases like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. You know, those diseases kill more Americans than anything else. So you're talking about, first of all, from national perspective, some issues that kill Americans, but also that undermine our economy, that contribute to health care costs, and, I, and I, we would argue, you know, erode the foundations of our national power. You know, how can America be a great, powerful country if we are, if our, our own people are, are dying sooner than they should be, and if we are taking on these enormous costs, uh, you know, again, in, in health care costs, in, in Public healthcare programs like Medicare, and Medicaid, but also what we individually pay in our premiums, um, and also that undermine our economy. And so, you know, one thing we want people to take away from the book is that we need to, we need to rethink, recontextualize national security debates and think about issues like obesity and guns as being national security issues and ones that that need as much attention as we would give to a national security crisis like terrorism or you know, Iran's nuclear program or or, or 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 you know the rise of China. Now, you mentioned in the book, and this is something I've written about myself, uh, I, I should note, uh, that the vast majority of gun deaths in America are not f- these public mass shootings. That's right. They are suicides. Uh, and uh, related to that, um, they are at 
the the weapon of choice is not the military assault rifle it's the handgun you don't, exactly. you don't kill yourself with a military assault rifle that's 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 more complicated uh, but our focus on the issue uh, only seems to happen when there is a public mass shooting so we have this uh, usually multi-day you know, a national mourning uh, which quickly uh, leads into a, a political polarization, a debate over should we ban guns or not, uh, which never resolves itself. And then after a few days of yelling at each other, we move on to the next right. national crisis or next news story. And, and because we don't, because we don't think of the issue as primarily a suicide slash handgun problem, we only talk about it when it's a public mass shooting military assault rifle issue, and then we forget about it in between mass shootings. Right. So how can we reorientate our conversation to deal with the the majority of the actual uh, gun death issue? Well, I mean, I think we should just be talking about it. I mean, I think it's, you know, the best, the only way I can think of to, to, to me, there's a big public education element to this, this, con- this, this issue. I think most Americans do not understand that if you bring a gun into your home nominally for protection, the chances that someone in that home will die from gun violence exponentially increase. There's just no other way around it. I mean, the biggest, the biggest risk factor in dying from gun violence is owning a gun. Um, and I think many Americans do not understand or appreciate the dangers that exist in owning firearms. Um, and, you know, that, 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 that includes things like um, accidents, um, things such as domestic violence, which is a, which is a, a huge factor in in gun violence in this country, but but also suicide. I mean, as you said, I mean the majority of gun deaths are from suicide, um, and America and suicide rates in America have dramatically increased. Well, the rest of the world suicide rates are declining. In America, they're increasing. Now, there's lots of different theories on why this is happening, um, but one one contributing factor, no question about it, is the is the easy availability of guns. And, and the reason for that is because when someone tries to kill themselves with a gun, the results are often very final and very tragic. It's rare that you try to kill yourself with a gun and, and you don't and you survive. But the rea- but in most most situations, people who try to commit suicide do not kill themselves. Um, in many cases, suicides are a cry for help. Uh, they're a, a attempt to get attention. Um, and so you try to kill yourself with an overdose or slashing one's wrist, something, something like that, which is awful, obviously. But often people will survive that. But again, with gun violence, they do not. And so there's a very – I hate to use this word, um, but it's, it's, it's sort of the way that I think it's described in sort of public health circles. The success rate on suicide is much higher in the United States, and that's largely because of the availability of guns. Um, and so – uh, you know, if people did, we didn't have the same availability of guns that we do, suicide rates would be lower. So that's something I, I think that's important to keep in mind. And I think I, I you know, I've sort of for, for a long time thought there needs to be more public education about this, understanding that that um, if you own a gun, you, you're you're putting yourself at risk, and those, and your family members as well. Um, and so I think, it, you know, I, I think talking about suicide rates when it comes to guns is really really important because it, it is something I think is, is misunderstood. And I think it's something that if you understood it better, you might have different different patterns of gun ownership. So we've talked a lot about what's not so great in the world, uh, climate crisis, gun crisis, uh, obesity. Um, as, a, as a final takeaway for our listeners, what, can, what should we 
what should we take away from the positive of the past century and then some, uh, and how uh, America and the world has improved? What 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 are the lessons to learn to apply to the remaining problems that we face? You know, it's a good question, and and I think the one way I think about this is 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 that you know, our book talks about the success stories and talks about the progress that's been made. But, you know, we are not, we understand also that that progress can be reversed. And, and I think with the election of Trump and, and sort of the, the backslap, backstep on democracy using a number of countries, I think, you know, places like in the UK with Brexit and in Brazil with the, with the recent election of a right-wing leader, I think all of those suggest that, th- that these changes can be undone. Um, and I think, you know, it's important to be vigilant in sort of understanding how we've got, how much progress we've made. It's important, first of all, to understand the progress has been made. That's that's the first step. To understand that part, understand how that happened, and understand how it will continue and what's the best way to make it continue. Um, and that and that nothing is written in stone when it comes to you know th- this these advances. They can be reversed. So I think I think that's that's an important part to understand. And, and I think you know one way to to ensure they are not reversed is to have a president. Understands the importance of the national system, the importance of national cooperation, the importance of standing up for democracy and human rights. I think the other thing is that, you know, the success that we've seen in things like dealing with the AIDS crisis, you know, closing the ozone hole, uh, you know, getting more girls to go to school, which is such a huge factor in development in, in developing countries. Those happened because, you know, there was a comp- there was a consensus that existed among a whole host of international actors. These issues were important, and they need to be addressed. And so, when I people talk about climate change to me, and I, and I again, I, we're not, you know, I would say very clearly, we are, we are, we would we say this in the book that the one issue that can undermine most of the progress that's been made over the past several decades is climate change. But we also would say that the progress that we've made, that you know, the way that happened, uh, can be is a model for how we deal with climate change. And I think that's really the point to get across here, that, that, we have sh- that we have seen over and over again that global actors can come together and, and try to solve these problems. We can do the same thing on climate change. It's tougher. I'm not, I don't want to be – I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's more, it's more difficult. It's you know, you, more, more actors that are, that are going to be harmed by this. But we, we have a model for how to, how to make progress on difficult international issues. And we can the success that we've achieved in other in other places, we can be achieved in climate change if there is this 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 uh, you know forthrightness and 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 uh, wherewithal of you know certainly this country of our political leaders to deal with the crisis. So I guess that's sort of the hopeful message is that you know, take away from the progress that we've seen that we know how to do these things, we know how to solve these these, these sort of crises, and and hopefully the lessons. That the successful lessons that, we, that we've seen over the past several decades can be applied to climate change. Because if it's not, then, you know, then a lot of what we've written in this book is going to turn out to be, to be reversed. And a lot of the success we've seen is going to be reversed. So I think that, that if there's one sort of hopeful message or one message to think about when you're deciding how to vote in 2020, it, it would be that one. The book is Clear and Present Safety. The world has never been better and why that matters to Americans Michael A. Cohen, thanks so much for being on New Books of Politics. Thank you so much. Great to be here.